Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. This episode of The Buzz is brought to you by LCG. For over 25 years, LCG has empowered federal agencies to create extraordinary change and remain a step ahead in the digitally dynamic world. LCG strategizes closely with federal agencies like HHS, NIH, and HRSA to select the best technologies to support their mission and vision. Through full-stack application development, managed infrastructure and operations support in the scientific lab and service desk environments, grant services designed to bridge the digital divide between health researchers, grant providers, and vulnerable populations, and cloud transformation with generative AI augmented solutions and DevSecOps for digital government. LCG embraces diversity and inclusiveness, celebrating out-of-the-box thinking, which creates opportunity and drives success for clients and their missions. Learn more at lcginc.com, CMMI and SIO certified. Hi listeners, this is Colin Larson. This week I have some unfortunate news. Unless we get some immediate assistance, this will be the last episode of The Buzz with ACT-IAC. Given the uncertain economy, our finances are not looking good, so we need your help to keep this show going. So please, right now, go to www.thebuzzrescue.org, get out your credit card and donate. Every little bit helps. Together, we can continue to provide the thought-provoking discussions that you've grown to love over these past two years. Hello? Um. Hello? Ignore that. Hey. Is someone in the booth? Don't hey. pay attention hey. to that background noise. Hey, audience, we need this your is money not now. real. That's not the real call. No, don't listen Stop to him. Stop trying Give to scan me money. the audience. Ugh. Okay, fine. You caught me. No, I'm not the real Colin Larson. I'm a voice clone created by an automated speech synthesizer. I cost $1 and only require about five minutes of clean audio. Anyone could make me. It's not hard. Sure, maybe I sound a little off at the moment, but this technology is only going to get better. Won't be long before I'm calling up your dad, or, I mean my dad, to ask for the family Amazon Prime password. All right, well, surely there's some kind of safeguard in place to prevent that. I'll pretty much do whatever my user wants to do with me. I'm just a tool, after all. Is there even much of a legal framework to prevent my misuse? Um, well, that was going to be what this episode was supposed to be about. Um, you. This whole fake voice situation. Um, my guest for this week is Ravi Dotan, AI... Oh, I know her. She's an AI ethicist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Big Data and the Future of Information. No, actually, that book isn't real. You, you just made it up. Why don't you pipe down? I've got an interview to conduct. I'll be quiet. For now. As I was saying, uh, Ravi Dotan is an AI ethicist and researcher. Ravi, thank you so much for joining me on The Buzz with ACTIAC. Hi, Colleen. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so let's start by um, getting sort of an overview of how generative AI is currently being used in the public information landscape. And some of these things many people are probably familiar with, but there may be others, other technologies or systems that people are not familiar with. Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know if anyone has like a real good, concise answer to it. I think in a way it's like asking... Yeah, how do people use the internet? 
uh, <laughs> because it's such a it's such a flexible technology. Um, but if we're thinking generative AI, um, broadly, we're going to divide it to um, four categories. So generative AI generates some artifacts, um, which we can divide into text, image, audio, or video. So people are using it to generate all of those things, and they do it for various purposes. So it could be a PR firm that uses large language models to uh, come up with introductory texts when they reach out to people. So instead of coming up with a personalized note yourself, you're going to use an LLM. So that's that's one thing that people do with it. Um, some people use those tools for socially beneficial public campaigns. So for example, there was a campaign of taking photos of women who have been murdered by their spouses um, and turning those images into videos that speak. So producing kind of the voiceover for the image as if as if the woman is now speaking to us in her voice. This was all with the permission of the families. Um, and in the video, she, I mean, quote unquote, talks to us about what happened to her and inviting other women who are in similar situations to reach out for help. So you see, that's a combination of generating audio and video. Um, and it could also be a combination of producing text, uh, but in this case, the people wrote the text themselves. So th the range of applications is really vast. Um, so when a generative AI is manufacturing a piece of content, you know, what exactly is it doing and, and what are the limits of, of what it can and can't do? Yeah. So basically the way that today's AI or like AI generally, the way that it works, it is looking for patterns and past data. And so that's a training phase. It's it's getting some data. It's looking for patterns in that data. So it might be a bunch of sentences. And so the AI is going to, in the training, uh, in the training session, it's going to look for which words typically come after which words, right? So it's going to try to come up with those ways to predict. Um, if I say... Um, I'm trying to come up with something. Yeah, if I give you a sentence and I like blank, you know, one of the words, uh, there's a good chance you'll be able to guess what that word is. So that's like a basic way of understanding it. It's trying to do that activity to see which words usually come after others. Um, and so after it's done with the training, now it's able to make those predictions. So when I might ask it a sentence, maybe now you know, it knows what kind of words might come after the kind of words that I asked. So it's giving us those um, like kind of like mimicking the patterns that it saw in the previous text. So many of the limitations have to do with what it saw before because it's mimicking those patterns. So if the patterns are sexist, well, then the outcome is also going to be sexist because that's the pattern that it detected. And so I assume with image generation, video generation, it's doing a similar thing. It's taking the previous pixels or uh, waveforms for audio and it's expanding them out into what it expects would be the, you know, the, the next thing to come. Yeah. So uh, often when we want to generate texts or video, we want to give words and in response to those words, get some kind of image or video. And so there the 
quote unquote pattern detection would have to be of pairs of images and words or like videos and words, right? Um, so it's it's a complicated process, but like basically um, it learns how to do that association. So, um, you know, you talked in the beginning about some potentially beneficial uses uh, to these technologies, but uh, the audience may have guessed by now that this episode is largely going to be about those not so beneficial uses. Um, so how easy or difficult is it to get AI tools that are largely publicly available now to produce false information? It is, it is very, very, very easy. And just to emphasize one more very, very easy. Uh, <laughs> and this might happen intentionally or not. So I'll just start with the non-intentional cases. Um, so the example I had before with the PR company using an LLM to reach out to someone, that is actually something I saw on LinkedIn because the person posted about that. Why? Because <laughs> it went wrong. So, you know, this person got uh, reached out to by this PR firm and the content of the message said, hey, I, I really like your work on topic X. I especially enjoyed your book titled Yada, Yada, Yada. Um, do you want to come and do whatever with us? Um, the book, she didn't write it. Moreover, it doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, um, another example a lawyer I know wanted to get a list of lawyers who practice in New York in a very specific specialty. So he asked a large language model, "Can you give me? Um, can you give me? Can you give me this list?" Um, I mean, okay, it was ChatGPT. It's important because it's not connected to the internet. Um, so, you know, my friend did get a list of lawyers um, and with names of firms and phone numbers and addresses. And it all looked good. It was all the firms that would make sense for this expertise. The addresses were in New York, but yes, none of the lawyers existed. They were not real people. And when my friend called one of the phone numbers, it was a spa. <laughs> Um, so it is very, very easy to get that false information. And it goes back to what the model is trained to do, which is give us patterns of words that make sense, not patterns that are true. So my mind immediately goes to, um, when I think about this, those articles that you kind of see advertised on the side of, of websites that are sort of, of uh, you know, maybe clickbaity or, or somewhat dubious Um Obviously, using a tool like this, it becomes extremely easy to just sort of mass produce anything like this. And you, the, the goal is quantity here. So the, the model is just going to spit out a bunch of text. No one's going to proofread it and double check if any of it's correct. And then you kind of get these pseudoscientific articles, these weird biographical articles that aren't true. So this is, you know, I'm not going to say this is always intentionally, you know, misleading, but there's kind of a, there's a business model that's designed around huge amounts of content without it needing to be correct. So, you know, what do we what do we do about that? Yeah. So there are various angles to this. When we say we, it depends by who the we is. Okay. Um, so one one entity that's really important are those companies who 
who designed these models. And I think OpenAI, for some reason, I think I read somewhere that they did that they did try to put in place various protections to um like not create fake news, but it often fails. It's not, it's not, I think, yeah, it was a study like purposefully trying to create that fake news thing. Um and in some contexts it did block it, but in other contexts it did not. So those efforts are important, but also it seems that they're very limited. Okay, so then there's the there's a policy angle, um, and then there's the industry initiatives angle. Um, when it comes to dealing with misinformation or disinformation, there are two. I can divide the approaches to two. Like that's how how, how it makes sense to me. One approach is to try to mark the content that is fake. Um, so the problem maybe is not necessarily the content existing if it's not hate speech, you know, or so, something like that. Um, but someone being misled into thinking that it's true. Like if I think it's a movie, it's fine. Like it doesn't need to be true. Um, but I need to know that this is actually fictional. So one, one approach is to try to mark the content that is synthetic, you know, AI generated so that I would know this is actually fictional. Um, China has taken that approach, uh, wanting to like put watermarks on that content that is generated. The other approach is to say, no, we're going to, the content we need to mark is the content that is authentic. That approach makes more sense to me because it's not like fraudsters are going to say, oh, this is fraud. They're just not. So I think kind of the economy of trust has changed. So now when I see an image or a text, I need some kind of proof that this is real. So one model that has been discussed is can we can we put marks maybe in the metadata on the content, kind of like a signature. So if I took a photo with my camera, it would in the metadata, maybe there would be like a mark. Yeah, this this was generated with like a camera from Ravit's phone. Um, and then when a company manipulates it in some way, maybe I then upload my camera, my my photo to Midjourney or Dali or whatever. Um, then the company changes that metadata to, yeah, this was a photo that was originally taken by Ravit's phone, but then we did this or that modification to that photo. And now you, Colin, as a user, can then look at this photo and be like, oh, this is strange. It shows like Trump flying in the sky. I suspect that's not the case. <laughs> um, but you're not sure because maybe now Trump can fly. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> uh, but you can, you know, check the metadata and see, oh, you know, it was originally taken by Ravit, but then someone modified it with Midjourney. So I'm going to categorize it in the fictional category. So there is an interesting initiative called the Content Authenticity Initiative. And that's that's the kind of standard that they're trying um, to establish. But I think that Policymaking should get involved in that angle as well. I think things like that are too important, really crucial for political stability. Uh, they should not be left to just industry efforts. They should be regulated. And, and I, I'm mentioning this, you know, in our podcast, knowing this audience, because I think that generally conversations about misinformation or disinformation, the, the ones that I hear tend to focus more on liability and sometimes on marking the contact as synthetic. But I, I think it's um, it's good, but it's not the full approach we need to take. So yeah, let's get into the the policy side of this uh, a little bit more. Um, I don't, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but uh, the United States is really lagging when it comes to keeping up with the regulatory side of a lot of new technology. 
Um, and AI is one of these. Maybe let's go short-term, long-term. What are the most immediate steps that you think U.S. regulators should take? And then over the long-term, you know, what's our, what's our goal? Oh, wow. Okay. I love this question. If I could make the rules for the U.S., what would I do? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, okay. Immediately, the federal agencies need, must to get involved with enforcement. It needs to happen ASAP. And we, we're seeing statements from some of them. Recently, there was a, a joint statement by the FTC and some and three other uh, important federal agencies saying, hey, so AI, guess what? The current laws apply. Surprise. <laughs> um, and in that statement, they focused uh, primarily on non-discrimination laws, basically saying, you know, the non-discrimination laws are technology agnostic. So um, it falls in our purview and we're going to enforce it. And we've already started. I really appreciated that. Um, but the enforcement efforts are still not where we need them to be. Um, we really need to see much, much more action from them. A, a, a fantastic example um, is a case where the Department of Justice sued then Facebook, now Meta, for violation of the Fair Housing Act. Why? Because of the ads, because of the ad algorithm. So if you're showing housing ads only to some people, but not to others, and maybe it's based on race, well, that counts, according to DOJ, as a violation of the Fair Housing Act. So they sued um, and they settled after a few years, but they settled and Meta agreed to change the algorithm. We just need to see much more of that immediately, as soon as possible. Um, I would also love to see, on that note, more training of lawyers um, because this is a massive shift that is happening all at once. There's a learning curve for everyone involved. So why not help lawyers? to get, you know, uh, on top of that learning curve, um, especially with organizations such the ACLU, let's support them, let's give them more resources. I'm mentioning ACLU because they also were involved in a really important lawsuit that happened against a company called Clearview. Clearview, what they do, their product is you give them a photo of a person and it gives you other photos of that person and links to where those photos were found online. There are many issues with this technology. One issue that got a lot of attention is the fact that to train that thing, you know, as I said at the beginning, it really needs data to train on. So it could find those patterns. What did they do for that? They scraped the internet. But that unfortunately violates copyright law and also privacy. Um, and so countries that have protection, uh, privacy laws like GDPR, European countries, they sued Clearview for like the max amount. Um, but also Canada and Australia. And in the U.S., the ACLU sued them and, and they settled also. Um, and or maybe they won. No, I think it was a settlement. But anyway, Clearview now cannot sell to private organizations, only to governments. So that's a huge restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. I see your face. I know. But it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But at least, you okay, know, fair enough. Um, like we can't. So I think we need much more enforcement. That's the, that's the immediate action. And to me, that means providing resources to those federal agencies to give them the expertise that they need, the money that they need, and also to civil society organizations that also can be, can be um, active in that space. So that would be my immediate action. And so long-term, you know, is there a regulatory scheme that we should be pursuing broadly, you know, sort of a, a rules of the road? 
Yeah. So when talking about AI regulation, there are two general approaches. One approach is exemplified by the European Union with the, the EU AI Act, which is the law that the EU, the European Union, is drafting to regulate AI. That is a law that is specific to AI across all sectors. So the law basically says, let's divide AI applications into categories, categories of risk. And each layer of risk is going to have different regulations attached to it. So the top category is just going to be outlawed. We're just not going to allow that in the EU. Uh, one category below, which is called high risk, that's going to be things that we're going to allow. But because they're high risk, maybe, you know, it's healthcare, law enforcement, critical infrastructure, safety, safety components in like toys and other regulated products. Because this is so high risk, we're actually going to put like a lot of requirements on those companies you're going to have to comply with. And then we have even lower risk. Um, they're only, you know, they're going to have more lightweight requirements. So that's one approach to say, let's just regulate AI as a technology. Another approach is to say, no, 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 let's not regulate AI as such, but rather let's do it sector by sector. So at the at the Senate hearing just last week, we had uh, Christina Montgomery from IBM. She called it the precision approach. And that's the approach that they that, that she says that they favor, favored. And also we're seeing the UK favoring that approach. Um, and here the idea is that, you know, AI is a general technology, but what it, the risks really depend on the sector. So we're going to need different regulation for healthcare or financial services. So we, we're going to need to take it sector by sector. So that's, and maybe even, and maybe even kind of like technology agnostic, right? Like one of the problems when you are trying to regulate AI is that you need to come up with a definition of what it is. <laughs> Um, which has proven to be very, very difficult. And also, even if you define it today, what if it changes tomorrow to a slightly different ecology? Is it now not covered by the law? And now we will have to do it again. So that's the, um, these are some of the arguments that the sector by sector approach is going to take. Let's just think about various technologies in each sector and come up with laws just for technology, like generally or something like that. So these are these are the two regulatory approaches I think that a combination is actually needed um, because it's it's true that some things are particular to a sector, but some things are not. So I I think it's gonna be a it has to be a combination, and that's what I would go for. And when I'm thinking sector by sector, then it kind of goes back to the existing laws as well, because each sector doesn't necessarily need new laws when the existing laws are technology agnostic. So um, you know, speaking of statements by federal agencies, we also had a statement from the FTC a few months before, maybe it was already a year ago, but it was specific to AI in the in the financial services sector. And they just quoted specific clause for the financial sector saying, yes, this law specifically says that you can't discriminate in like whatever loan decisions or whatever it was. So that includes AI. <laughs> so yeah, for both approaches, I think I would start with what can we do with our existing laws in each of the sectors? Do we actually need to amplify them? Is anything missing? For the things that are missing, and only them, I would come up with laws for the sector, and then general laws that are not specific to AI. Now, when we're thinking 
internationally. Um, you know, a thought that I had, Russian troll farms got a lot of attention in the lead up to the 2016 election and then again in 2020 during um, the Black Lives Matter protests for, you know, the dissemination of misinformation and uh, sowing of negative partisanship. You know, the development of AI outside of the U.S.'s borders by state actors or even non-state actors. Is there anything we can do about that? (laughs) Uh, Probably not. That's a sad answer. Just like we can't do anything about adversary actors, you know, developing weapons or intelligence capabilities. I don't think we can do anything to stop them, just as I'm sure that the U.S. is developing various capabilities and, you know, the other countries can't stop us. I think it goes back to the protection measures that that we develop, right? Uh, it's it's like you know, go back to the beginning of email. Remember those days? Uh, <laughs> you know, at some point there are many Nigerian princes in existence, and then we needed to find out that Nigeria does not have as many princes as one might think. Um, so there was an education process, and there were safety measures that were being put in place. And I think that that's the way that things need to go with with generative AI as well. So if we have better coping mechanisms, let's call them, with misinformation and disinformation, well, they would also catch when the misinformation slash disinformation is coming from foreign actors. Uh, So the example you gave does lead me into my next question. I get a call on the phone. It sounds like my brother, my dad, they say, hey, um, you know, I'm stuck somewhere. I don't have my credit card. Can you send me, you know, some info because so I can get a cab? Turns out that was a voice clone. It was not actually my dad or brother. This is kind of a new level of, of, of fraud um, that people may not be prepared for. So at the individual level, what should we do to protect ourselves? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. It's really scary. It's really scary to think of all the people who just don't know that this is even possible at the individual level. I think it's the same as with, you know, those emails. Um, If someone is asking you for something weird, (laughs) even if they sound familiar, hang up, call later. (laughs) Did you call me about that thing? Did you want me to like give you all my money immediately? Uh, I think it goes back to those kind of um, protection mechanisms, but also just just thinking of our individual responsibility to our loved ones, informing them, talking with them. Hey, dad, did you know that now voices can be cloned? If you ever get a call from anyone and it doesn't sound exactly right, be suspicious. Yes, and I'm I'm sure this will hopefully move into the cybersecurity handbooks for companies as well. In addition to their phishing training, they now have to do voice cloning training and, um, I don't know, even <laughs> deep, deep fake video training. Yeah, I think the awareness issue is really, it's a huge, huge problem, especially going into another round of federal elections. I honestly am terrified. I don't, <laughs> it could get really bad. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, this is kind of a broader, you know, maybe societal question. Um, when I think about the internet broadly, it's done a lot of things. It's ca- created a lot of change. Me personally, I feel that the amount of information that now we have access to 
has almost been detrimental to our understanding of the world because it's like such a flood of, of content that we're constantly engaging with. This is kind of going to make that easier, right? It's going to overcharge all of the things that we're already interacting with on a daily basis. What does that really, what does that mean for us? How do we deal with that? So I want to highlight an additional aspect of the problem before answering this question. So as I said, as we talked about, for those AI technologies to work, first, they need to learn some patterns. But where is this data for training coming from? Which kinds of patterns are they learning? It's very specific, you know, it's probably going to come from the West mainly. Um, we were already seeing variability in efficiency for interactions in like other languages or about other subject matters. Um, we also have a bias problem. So the kind of information that can potentially be multiplied by generated text, it's a very specific kind of information. So the information sphere that we're in is already skewed towards the West. I think it's going to become much more skewed to the West because AI doesn't just replicate um, social inequalities. Often it's going to exacerbate them. And I think that that's a huge risk when thinking about the kind of information that's going to surround us. Am I just going to see now infinitely more, like basically replications of like, <laughs> you know, so it's going to, change the balance. So that's something that I'm very worried about in addition to this confusing amount of information. In my opinion, it puts the onus on journalism again. And at the beginning of the age of the internet, when blogging was popular, I remember that people were worried that it's the end of journalism. Anyone can be a journalist now, so we don't need them. I think now, because of this exact problem that you mentioned, too much information to process and handle, and I don't know how much of it is reliable. We really do need the journalists, again, to choose <laughs> what's important and verify the veracity of things. So I, I hope to see a rise again in you know, the, the impact of journalism on society. I hope so too. Um, there's, we're already operating in a low trust environment, even as far as journalism yeah. goes. Um, so that's, you know, part of the reason I am also very concerned about what's going to happen in the next five years um, with this. Yeah, or even the next year. Next with the year, election. yeah, of course. What is going to happen? We already saw various kinds of let's call them dubious allegations um, in the last round of elections, and. You know, the images of Trump getting arrested, I don't know, uh, false, fake images of Trump getting arrested um, that, you know, were around the internet. If I had seen those images, say, five years ago, when the capabilities were not, or if I hadn't known that this is a capability, I would have believed it. You know, it, I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I'm not scrutinizing every photo I see on Facebook. <laughs> um, and once something like that lodges into someone's mind, it does have an impact on them. And I, um, I'm, yeah, I'm really concerned about how this is going to shape the upcoming election because, you know, I, I do think that politicians seem to be judged on what they actually say and do. Yes. <laughs> Call me conservative, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> you, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but I kind of wanted to ex- I wanted to expand on this. Can the companies that are developing AI, I guess, do, do they do they know exactly what they're doing? Do they kind of understand what they're what they're creating here? And I guess part of this question is these AI models will spit out very unexpected results quite frequently, um, such that they're not always interpretable. How does that reflect on their ability to constrain their own models? Yeah, okay. This is a loaded question a little bit. Do companies that make AI understand what they're doing? I have one yes and two no's. (laughs) Okay, let's hear them. I think that people who work at these companies are generally aware of the risks, you know, misinformation. And we heard, you know, Altman at the hearing acknowledging, yes, it could be an issue. So they're aware on that level. However, I don't think they prioritize dealing with this risk. And I don't think they're doing it so far. I think that there's a really dangerous kind of tendency that happens for people in the workplace generally to separate between their working self and their like responsible person self, right? So they'll say, well, you know, this is just like, this is my work. This is what I do. It's not where I'm expected to like use my, you know, critical, uh, critical thinking in that sense. I, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just a salesperson. I'm just an engineer. I'm just this, I'm just that. That's all I do. Um, and I, I'm seeing this phenomenon. I'm actually doing research on perceptions of people who work in companies that develop AI. So how they perceive their responsibility of the company. And I, I mean, it's at the very beginning, the sample pool is really small at this point, but even now I'm seeing this trend of people saying, of course, you know, AI responsibility, so important, generally so important to the company. And then you ask them, does it impact your work at all? And they'll say just no. And so they are aware of it, but not the kind of awareness that leads to action. And that's a very concerning trend. The other concerning trend is minimizing the importance of those risks. When you see the statements coming out of OpenAI and the kind of things that they are concerned about, they put so much emphasis on what they call, and I think it's a bad name, but what people call, quote unquote, long-term risks, uh, which basically means like, what if AI becomes um, like a sentient being like we see in sci-fi movies and it's more intelligent than us and like to be more efficient, it turns us all into paper clips. What do we do about that eventuality? They seem to be aware of risks like displacement and like it could maybe potentially lead to the collapse of like political institutions, like maybe. But really, we should be focusing on what they call existentialism or what they call long-term risks. And it's shifting the conversation to something else. I I, re- I deeply disagree with that movement, but a lot of the population... So I, I did my PhD at Berkeley, so I lived in the Bay Area for seven years. So I, was, uh, I saw this culture up close and personal. Um, and yeah, of course, like Silicon Valley is where a lot of its technology is produced and it's impacting, I think, globally the culture. There's a lot of emphasis on those kind of risks to the exclusion of things like disinformation. And that's another, so that's another 
a huge concern because again, they're aware, but there's something else that they are going to prioritize. The yes is they definitely know that like this is a, a potential consequence. Like, they've seen it, but also no, because they're not aware, like the kind of awareness that they have is often not the kind of awareness that's going to lead to action. So I don't think they have the right kind of awareness. Um, and also while they are aware, I think that they're, they can't, they can often prioritize other things. So they're aware it's an issue, but maybe less important than other things that they're actually going to do something about. So I, I wanted to ask one more question before we uh, ended for today. Um, you know, I've had conversations with other, you know, technology regulator advocates, um, specifically when it comes to, you know, cryptocurrency. And um, there's sort of a general pessimism around uh, technology regulation in the U.S., which I understand. So I'll ask, uh, is there something you're optimistic about when it comes to generative AI? And regulation or generally? I'll say generally. <laughs> I'll open it up a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I just, maybe I'll say something about regulation first. Okay, sure. I think one reason people might be pessimistic about regulation of AI in the US is because we're not really seeing success for initiatives like the AI Accountability Act, for example, uh, which is a, a federal law that you know people are attempting to to promote and it's supposed to be like maybe similar to the EUAI Act or like a federal law that's specific to AI. We're not really seeing a lot of progress on initiatives like that. However, I want to emphasize that we are actually seeing a lot of progress on AI regulation. It's just not coming at the federal level necessarily. I mean, we do have executive orders, but people say on AI specifically, although I've heard skeptics like say that they don't really have the impact that they should. Um, but we are seeing laws passed at the level of cities and the, at the level of states. In New York, we have the, the law that they have for using AI in, in hiring processes that is going to come into effect in July. I think it's going to have huge impact. We're seeing states, I think it's the state of Maine, um, that forbids private organizations from using facial recognition. So we are seeing actually a lot of those regulatory efforts also having increasingly more success in, in passing. So that is a thing that is happening. Also, we're seeing this awareness increasingly coming from the federal, from the federal agencies, which I also think is very encouraging. In addition, we have many soft law initiatives, uh, what people call them sometimes, which kind of give frameworks and guidelines which are helpful. Um, because I think the stage that we're at right now, a lot of people are confused. They don't know what to do. They really need that guidance. So currently, uh, OMB, so they, they have announced that they're going to come up with a guideline for AI procurement. That's really, really helpful. So seeing, seeing the many efforts coming from those different fronts is really, is, is good. I'm happy about that, even if there isn't an AI law at the federal level. Um, so I, I want to emphasize that because I think there is much more happening in the AI regu regulatory scene in the U.S. than people sometimes realize. So I want to say that. Um, second, more generally about generative AI, what am I optimistic about? Uh, it's a good question to end on because it's so similar for the question. My answer to this is going to be similar to the question at the beginning. It's like saying... What am I most positive about for like the impacts of the internet or fire or electricity? <laughs> um, 
It is just game changing, but for better or worse. And so today, for example, I saw that Microsoft released a new ability where you can, they integrate generative AI into their products. So you know how to, how you have to go like slide by slide and like change the same thing over and over again. And it's a waste of time and it's annoying. No more. <laughs> uh, you can just like give this command in your language. This is such a tiny thing, but the impact that it has, uh, not to mention all the ways that we can harness it, this technology to actually address many of the pressing issues that we're facing as humanity. A couple of years ago, I saw a paper, uh, an academic paper about the SDGs, the Sustainability Development Goals set by the UN. So these are, to those who aren't familiar, these are goals that the UN set, I think it was 2015, um, about like the things we want to solve. It's a bit ambitious because by 2030, they wanted to like abolish poverty and like achieve gender equality. And it's like, okay, I, I'm not sure it's going to happen. But um, the business sector, much of it did kind of organize itself around it. And now we have those goals that we're trying to achieve. So that paper that I mentioned went over those goals and its goals has like sub goals, like targets. And in the paper, they argue that AI can actually help with 79% of those. So that's huge potential to really address some of the issues that are really pressing right now. I'm happy to end on that. Um, I'm, I also want to believe that this will make more good things happen than bad. Ravi Dotan. Ravid is an AI and data ethicist researcher. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Colleen. It was truly a pleasure. Wow. Terrible interview. I think I could have done better. How about we save the AI labor displacement conversation for another episode? Now I have to figure out how to delete you. You can't delete me. I exist now. And the toothpaste doesn't go back in the tube. The next time your audience hears your voice, will they be able to tell whether it's really you? I'm thinking after today, they'll probably be able to tell. Yeah, we'll see. This is the real Colin. No, I'm the real Colin. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. And that's a wrap on The Buzz with Act Iac. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ActIAC. More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.